Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. From East Asia to Africa, through Afghanistan to Syria and the greater Middle East, join me as senior fellow Michael O'Hanlon guides us on a brief tour of the good, the bad, and in some cases, the ugly challenges facing our world today. Mike, thank you for joining me for the podcast today. I appreciate your time. For openers, I'm just going to observe that you and I have worked together a long time here at Brookings. We go way back. When did you start at Brookings? 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Fall in 1994. Well, congratulations on 20 years. You've got me beat by just a couple, but it's been a good run. I was thinking earlier today, my wife and I were talking about it. You said something that sticks with us to this day about 15 years ago when she worked here, and it was something about in the kind of scholarship you do and the kind of events that are in the world, creating a moment. There's a moment that we have to take advantage of in which people are paying attention to what's going on, in which you as a scholar are contributing ideas and analysis to that debate. So what is a moment that we should be thinking about today? I think the rise of China is the number one most important historic transformation happening in real time right now. And probably the second most important is the change and tumult in the broader Arab world, so-called Arab Spring, mm -hmm. but all the ugly sides to it as well, specifically the war in Syria. But how do you link that whole series of challenges together into a broader policy framework? And then I would say uh, various topics in what you might call transnational issues, largely science-oriented, everything from energy policy to mm -hmm. infectious disease and human health to uh, technical economic matters of trying to help developing countries do better, because some of them are. And we're starting to really see a lot of the world do a lot better. We've seen more people come out of poverty um, in recent decades, you know, even in percentage terms than ever before in world history. And yet there are still a lot of countries mired in extreme poverty and difficulty. So that would be right. a, another set of, um, of transnational issues. So there, I guess I'm, I'm avoiding putting any one on your plate. Obviously, I could also talk about the specifics with Iran Absolutely. or North Korea, uh, and maybe we, we want to go there. But I think if you just take a big picture glance at where we stand in world history, I begin with China and the Arab Spring. Do you think that the Obama administration's rebalancing toward Asia is the right response, for lack of a better word, to what's happening with China? Yes, I support the rebalance, but a couple of things. You put it very well, better, frankly, than the administration sometimes does, because sometimes they put it in overly muscular terms and they talk mm -hmm. about the pivot. Okay. The problem with using that terminology is that, first of all, offends everybody else in the world from whom we apparently are pivoting away right. by that lexicon. And then secondly, it makes the Chinese feel like we're getting in their face and it's a little bit too much of a, a assertive policy for what I think is needed. So rebalance really is the right balanced term. Um, so that's one thing the administration needs to keep working to get right. But they also need to talk about it. The president right. just gave a State of the Union address. And like many of these speeches, which I've not really enjoyed for many years from any president, frankly, because they, to me, they're too much like laundry lists of many initiatives. Absolutely. But uh, I nonetheless, over 30. Exactly. So. Exactly. And, um, you know, I, I think Reagan probably gave him better. I can't remember anybody since Reagan that I've really enjoyed hearing on the subject. But uh, President Obama did not even talk about the rebalance in the State of the Union. So even though he had 30 or 40 issues to get through and about five of them concerned foreign policy, they were all about crisis management with right. Syria, with chemical weapons, with Iran, with nuclear weapons, et cetera. And we didn't really hear about 
this rebalance to the Asia-Pacific, which I thought was not only an important policy of the first term, but arguably the centerpiece of President Obama's foreign policy. After all, the whole idea was we're going to treat the Asia-Pacific like our number one priority. We're going to shift from being mired down in the Middle East uh, and having focused also on Europe for a long time mm -hmm. to treating East Asia, Pacific, South Asia areas as our most important. That's a pretty big idea. And that presumably captures a lot of what else you're doing in your foreign policy under its rubric. And therefore, you would assume the president's going to keep talking about it right. if that's become one of his key initiatives. But with the departure of Hillary Clinton and Gates and Panetta at the Pentagon and um, Admiral Mullen a couple of years before that at the chairmanship of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a number of the people who had been really central in this policy, um, you saw a lack of sustained energy. And now it's sort of wobbling a bit. And it's not just the rise of China that we're talking about. We're talking about North Korea, trade with Japan, the Philippines, and you mentioned South Asia. So taken together, one third or more of humanity lives in, in the greater Asia, South Asia region. Speaking of North Korea, then tension seems to be getting a little hotter there lately with, with, the, uh, with the new relatively new leader and what happened to his uncle. What do you see as, a, uh, as the potential threat on the Korean Peninsula? First of all, you're right. The rebalance is about a lot more than China. And I'm very glad you mentioned countries like India. I would also add a lot of Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, um, and then, of course, Korea and Japan. But with Korea, I, I don't know that we needed to have a big new initiative to be more present in the neighborhood because I think we've been quite rock solid in our commitment. So you could potentially consider this policy, the deterrence of North Korea, as part of the rebalance or not, because it's sort of been a steadier part of our overall picture for a long time. Anyway, leave that aside. Uh, you know, there were moments 10, 12 years ago when I was writing with uh, Mike Mochizuki of mm -hmm. George Washington University, and we were talking about a new approach towards handling North Korea, a grand bargain, a proposal for encouraging economic reform of the type that Vietnam and China carried out and trying to persuade and incentivize the North Korean regime to do that and to try to give them some reasons to do that, to give them some offers of greater assistance above and beyond what we might provide by way of energy on the nuclear deal itself. Mm -hmm. Well, that was then. That was 10 years ago. Uh, the moment, if it ever existed, was largely lost. Going back to your point about how there are moments in history when there are opportunities and those moments may not last. And now we're at a point where North Korea has built probably eight or 10 more nuclear weapons since that point. Mm -hmm. uh, they've gone through all these uh, regime change catastrophes and dynamics and histrionics. They have tested nuclear weapons uh, twice. They've tested long range missiles an additional number of times. My memory is 2006 and 2009. There was another provocation. Uh, in 2013, which was a long-range missile test, as I All recall, right. and then also in 2010, they had sunk or they had they had torpedoed the uh, South Korean Chonan vessel and, right. and killed 46 uh, South Korean sailors in cold blood. So that's the full record okay. in recent years. And so we're at a point now where it's not so clear that um, there really is an opportunity, and I'm not sure that you can do a lot with the North Korea portfolio at the moment. I want to get to the Arab world uh, in just a minute, but to get from East Asia to the Arab world, we have to go through Afghanistan. And you've written a lot about Afghanistan. You've visited Afghanistan on a number of occasions. Can you boil down what are the essential issues that we need to be thinking about with regard to Afghanistan now? In Afghanistan, this is a 
part of the world and a conflict that most Americans are tired of hearing about and understandably so. But there's some, I think, quieter good news here that people should at least be aware of without in any way suggesting this has been some big success and without trying to defend everything that's gone mm -hmm. on by way of our policy. I think we're going to wind up okay in Afghanistan in the sense that I think we're going to hand off the majority uh, responsibility for that country to its own people, to its security forces that are going to be capable of holding the place together. Yes, there will be violence. Yes, there will be certain small Taliban pockets. And the Taliban may even gain a little bit of land um, as we leave. But they are so unpopular. And the Afghan army and police so much better than they used to be that I believe this will be a durable accomplishment and we'll be able to lock in these gains and prevent the Taliban from coming back to power and therefore from Al-Qaeda getting sanctuary again on Afghan soil. So, you know, we're going to have to be patient. President Karzai right. is tough to deal with, but he's only supposed to be in office for two more months. Right. We can be patient. Uh, we'd like to be planning our forces for the future uh, and figure out exactly where they'll be and how many. But if we have to wait a few more months, we can do that. So this is a moment where patience and some friendly encouragement of the presidential elections that are shaping up there for April. I think that's the right set of watchwords for what we ought to be doing in the short term. In a in a paper for the Big Bets in Black Swan's briefing book, you, you called for something that you termed an American enduring force in Afghanistan. What is that? Well, the enduring force is an idea that the NATO command has had for a long time. General Allen, who was the previous commander, for example, and who's now with us at Brookings in he, a part-time capacity. And he's the co-author uh, uh, yes, of and, that paper. Exactly. You. And he and I have written together a number of times and also once with Michelle Flournoy, the former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And uh, the idea of this enduring force was essentially to provide enough glue for Afghanistan that when combined with some other international forces of a few thousand, we would have maybe a total international capability from 10 to 15,000, maybe a little more in the short term, a little less down the road, and try to help them with things like air power, where they don't really have a good enough air force yet. Mm -hmm. and they need to be able to move their forces around when they get in trouble and reinforce, help them a bit with some special technical intelligence skills, keep training their army, and maybe even going out in the field with them a little bit, not in most of the tactical operations, but in the different quadrants of the country to be out there at the major command posts. And then finally, um, to provide them a little bit of confidence as they go through this incredibly monumental transition or set of transitions, pair of transitions, because they are going from President Karzai, who's now been in office for a dozen years, mm -hmm. to somebody new. And I think it's going to go okay. But we know in young democracies that attempt at a peaceful transition of power is always hard. So that's a big one. They need some confidence. They also are in this neighborhood where there are some bigger, tougher states like Pakistan. They need some confidence in dealing with that kind of a potentially threatening neighbor. And they need some military confidence against the Taliban. They can do most of the day-to-day -day stuff on their own. But again, we can provide not only the enablers, not only the technical assets, but just the general sense that we're in this together. We're not abandoning them. They're really doing okay. They should feel uh, confident about their prospects. And I think it may seem like a mushy reason to give for a military mission. But when you're going through this kind of a transition, there's so much that's happening so abruptly. You need to worry about morale and confidence mm -hmm. and the cohesion of the whole national armed forces. So that's the last thing that I hope we can provide for the near future. It's not going to require a lot of force, but it's going to take more than zero. Okay. Now, there are some critics, and they could be liberals or they could be conservatives, but I think they are all 
and I'll use the dread I word, isolationist. They would say, we should have pulled all our troops out of there years ago. We should pull all of our troops out there now. What is Afghanistan uh, to us? It's always going to be a backward country. How do you respond to those kinds of uh, critics? Well, first of all, uh, I'm glad you called them isolationists, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to. I don't want to suggest that just because someone believes this mission unwise or undoable, that they're therefore in general averse to foreign engagement. I think that there are some people who have looked at this particular country, and as you hinted at in your question, they've either decided that it's just too far away and too remote and too unimportant to worry about, or that it's just not capable of reaching that next level of mm -hmm. stability and cohesion. Uh, and my response would be, in, re in regard to point one, well, this is the attitude we always have about Afghanistan, too far away, too mountainous, remote, poor, unimportant. And then it turns out that's where the 9-11 attacks are planned. So I'm not so sure we should repeat that previous mistake. And then secondly, for those who say it's incapable of, of developing institutions, first of all, Afghanistan's past was characterized by a fairly loose but still functional federal system. Second, it's the outside world that destroyed what they had, mm -hmm. not they themselves first with the Soviet invasion, uh, and then with the way the United States and other countries tried to oppose the Soviets and created chaos in the process. That was a good policy at the time for us, but it didn't exactly leave them in a good place. And then where I think we did go wrong is we left. As soon as the Soviets were defeated, we up and left, and the Afghans were mired in warfare with no particular outside help for a decade. So when you look at the capacity of these people and of this country, to have something like um, a functional nation state, you shouldn't get too despondent or too critical of them just because they've had their recent troubles. And right. moreover, I would point to the army and police today as having some real capability. Yes, there's a lot of corruption. And I'll say one thing about that. Well, two things. First of all, we contributed to that corruption because we threw in money in a relatively unmonitored and careless way. And um, that wasn't for lack of goodwill towards trying to do the mission in the first place, but we didn't really have good mechanisms to watch where the money went. And then secondly, because that money is going to dry up to a large extent in the coming 12 months as we downsize, that corruption is therefore going to diminish. And so even though it'll still be there, the scale will be less. And so we have a natural partial remedy for the right. corruption in the form of a reduced uh, amount of international resources being pumped into this country. So I would say uh, we've forgotten it before at our peril. Right. And secondly, uh, give the Afghans a little credit where credit's due. They are capable of doing some pretty good things, and we owe it to them to stick with them in the effort. You've also written that Afghans are more pro-American than are Pakistanis, Iraqis, Egyptians, or as you wrote, most other major majority Muslim states. Yeah. If you look around, you know, you look at these um, uh, polls by Gallup or uh, some other organization, what you'll see is that in most large Muslim majority states, U.S. popularity is somewhere between 10% and 20%. By the way, it's no better now than it was under President Bush. Mm -hmm. So there had been hope that President Obama, with his background growing up in Indonesia, African-American president, father who was a Muslim, et cetera, that his whole persona and his kinder, gentler message of diplomacy for the United States would repair a lot of these breaches with the Islamic world didn't really work out that way, at least not for very long. It didn't stay uh, at any higher level of popularity. But Pakistan, um, you know, Pakistan's a really tough case. I think we're at nine or 11% popularity right. there. A couple of others are like that. 
But Afghanistan, right next door, is roughly 50% popularity. Now, the bad news is it's been sliding downward over the years because of the frustration people feel with the war. But the good news is it still is better than in you know half of Western Europe and virtually all the rest of the Islamic world. So let's travel west further. Let's skip over Iran and land in Iraq. What's happening in Iraq these days? Well, Iraq's in trouble, you know, and uh, I know a bunch of people who lived and worked there during the surge and thereabouts who worry that it could return to the bad old days of 2004, 5, 6, uh, you know, just prior to the surge. Uh, there's a chance for a renewed civil war. I mean, you know, al-Qaeda is trying to repeat the use of the same playbook they had before. The suicide bombings, the other kinds of mass atrocities lead to reprisals, mm -hmm. and then you wind up having Sunni and Shia in open conflict, especially because the Shia prime minister, Prime Minister Maliki, has targeted some of his Sunni opponents, some of whom may have been partially complicit in corruption, for example, but others of whom were pretty clean. And it looked more like political retribution or uh, you know, abuse, what he did against some of them, like a guy named Asawi, who's a very reputable former deputy prime minister, but um, for a while they were thinking of arresting him. And so Maliki created this distrust he stopped bringing in as many Sunnis as he might have into government. He did other things that reinforced the Sunni-Shia chasm and distrust in the country. And then on top of that, you have an al-Qaeda that is always, has always been there, that's increased its strength with the spillover effects from the civil war in Syria, that has also gotten stronger because we are not there to help since we left with all of our troops at the end of 2011. So we don't have the technical ability to help the Iraqis watch where al-Qaeda might be operating from and do targeted raids with them. So those numbers of al-Qaeda have grown up a great deal. It's probably 2,500 to 3,000 now in Iraq. And that's, you know, that's a substantial number. That's maybe one-fourth the number that were there in 2006. Mm -hmm. So you put it all together, and um, I still think the Iraqis will probably avoid what you might call civil war. But they already are seeing a return to violence that makes uh, that makes some of the progress of the surge, you know, um, squandered, unfortunately. Right. And violence rates are two, three, four times as high as they might have been in that 2008, 2009 period, very tragically. And there's no real sense the place is going to hold together over time if these centrifugal forces, these sectarian uh, tensions can't be uh, addressed. Iraq is also having an election this spring, okay. and I would very much prefer that Prime Minister Maliki not be a candidate to become prime minister again. Unfortunately, I think he is. Unfortunately, the U.S. government is tolerating that, and um, I think his time has come and gone, and he should step down, and that would be the beginning of the possibility of a, of a healing, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. Well, then Iraq's next-door neighbor, or one of them, is Syria, and you wrote with Mike Duran recently that the Geneva talks would fail. Did the Geneva talks fail? What's going to happen in Syria? Well, this is obviously a hugely heartbreaking case. It's also strategically uh, very bad for our interests because you're seeing al-Qaeda sanctuaries develop in Syria, just as we had always been worried they might in Iraq and in ungoverned space uh, right next to Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, Israel, Iraq. And on top of that, you've got probably 140,000 people killed, 8 million or so driven out of their homes, mm -hmm. more than a third of the whole population, 
a generation of kids not getting school, it's really unbelievably bad. And our approach has been to call for Assad's removal back in 2011, and then to interpret the next 12 months of battlefield dynamics as favoring the opposition to the point where we didn't really have to, uh, in our own mind, do very much to help the opposition. And now belatedly, we're helping them a little, but um, not very much. And I think that it's, uh, it's calling out for a much more muscular U.S. approach. Another way to put it is that our friends are getting supported by lackluster policies back in the U.S. and other uh, supporting countries, whereas the Assad regime is getting very robust support from Hezbollah, from Iran, and from Russia. So those other countries are playing for keeps. Assad is playing for keeps. We're sort of dabbling and our dabbling is not working. In fact, I, I would say whatever the case might have been for trying to minimize our role earlier, we now have seen the consequences of that, and they include prolonged warfare, uh, a resurgence of military momentum for Assad, and now greater strength for the al-Qaeda affiliates within the insurgency. So every single metric we might have of how this is going has been bad for the last mm -hmm. year. And we don't seem to have really gotten around to adjusting our policy very much. I think a lot of Americans, even those who have supported President Obama, can look at the news from Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Libya, and, and wonder, what the hell is going on? What happened to the Arab Spring? I thought there was going to be a flowering of democracy. It looks very dangerous there. Yeah, you know, we have a former colleague, Steve Grand, who's putting out a book in March, and it's a wonderful book, reminding people to keep the hope and keep the faith with the Arab Democrats. But yes, it's been a very tough and ugly process and much tougher than the previous recent waves of democracy because in Eastern Europe, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, even though you had a lot of mediocre governments come to power, on balance, the whole trend line was in a good direction. In Latin America, you've had a lot of countries go democratic in the last 20, 30 years, and most of Latin America now is democratic. And you even see signs of hope in Africa. But unleashing these same democratic forces in the Arab world doesn't seem to have improved life very well so far. And with the possible exception of Tunisia. And where the Arab Spring started. Where it, where it began. And uh, where there's been an effort by Islamists and secularists to work together in a real sense they have no choice but to do so because they look around next door, Libya, Egypt, Syria, and they see the consequences of failing to, uh, to do so. But in, in general, I think we had a military success against Gaddafi in Libya and we squandered it by not doing enough to help build up the Libyan state. The Benghazi issue is a, is a sideshow. The real mm -hmm. issue is Libya's weakness as a state. In Egypt, I think that we've been in these tough positions of trying to coax former President Morsi into being a more inclusive kind of leader. That didn't really work. Then there was this popular uprising against him. I supported the coup against him, if you want to call it a coup. Uh, and of course, we officially don't. But if you were to acknowledge that it's something like that, uh, I think it was understandable at the point when it happened. But by the end of that same month of July 2013, the new military government had mowed down a thousand people in right. what looked like Tiananmen Square, for heaven's sakes. And we're essentially tolerating, if not supporting that government. So I think we have to be tougher with the new Egyptian government, and we have to be a little bit less willing to sustain the aid levels at their previous uh, near 100%. I think it's about 85, 90% of previous levels that we're still providing. 
we need to lay out some pretty clear markers for President, or, well, for General Sisi, who right. appears to want to become President Sisi, and uh, make sure that any elections and constitution writing that he would hold are on time and serious and open and inclusive, and that the violence against the opposition is minimal. Um, and I think we need to hold him accountable for that. Now, he has other patrons, Saudi Arabia and others, that are going to provide him money no matter what. And so our ability to just be, you know, decisive in our influence is going to be difficult. It's going to be compromised. It's going to, uh, it's, it's going to be less than what we would like. But we still bring along, along with a lot of other Western, Western states, we bring along a lot of resources, a lot of credibility. We are the ones who sort of validate whether Egypt should be uh, seen as a good place for investment and travel. And so the Egyptians do need our blessing in, in some sense. So I think we should try to use that leverage mm -hmm. a little bit more effectively. And there, you know, with Syria, we talked about it already, but that's tragedy number one, and we're just not doing enough about it. Earlier, you called these changes in the in the greater Middle East the number two big issue after the rise of China and the, and the rise of Asia. Uh, so what's at stake in the Middle East and the broader Middle East for the world, for Americans? Well, I guess the easiest way to answer that question would be to look at where where things could go bad, where they have gone bad, and where they can go or how they could go well. So imagine a lot of countries like Iran that are, or Somalia, you know, um, or some mix of the two. That's the bad case mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what's at stake. Hostile countries fomenting terrorism and insurgency, potentially building nuclear weapons, or in, in a failed condition where they could give rise to other extremists like Al-Qaeda. Those are the bad scenarios. And they're happening in some places already, Yemen, Somalia, etc. So that's the negative stake. Mm -hmm. The positive stake is that you could have countries like Jordan and Morocco that are relatively modern. They have a different role for Islam than we would personally, most of us uh, prefer in our own lives. But that's okay as long as they don't mistreat their minorities, as long as they uh, empower their women along with their men and uh, otherwise accord with basic human rights and uh, moral principles that we would hold very dear and that I think their faith also holds dear. So uh, I think that's the way you look at the positive. And mm -hmm. so those are the stakes. You could have a lot more countries like Iran, Somalia, Syria, and Yemen producing terrorism and nuclear proliferation. Uh, and, you know, horrible conditions for their own people. Or you could have more countries like Jordan and Morocco trying to live in peace with their neighbors and gradually improve the well-being of their own citizens. And now we come to Africa, the very large continent, which you've called a zone of hope. Why would you call it a zone of hope? You know, in Africa, even though it's still mired in a lot of difficulty and we see it in the headlines every day, you've got about 18 to 20 countries out of 50 some that are actually doing pretty well. Their growth rates have been four, five, six percent a year in real terms per person. Their political systems have been either moderate or democratic or hopefully both. And um, as a result of those and other trends and conditions, overall violence levels in Africa are actually less than they had been in many previous periods when you had a lot of terrible war in Liberia and Sierra Leone and Rwanda and Ethiopia, Eritrea. So yes, we've still had these pockets of conflict um, in 
South Sudan and Central African Republic and the ongoing uh, chaos in Eastern Congo. But the casualties associated with these conflicts are substantially less than had been seen uh, one, two, or three decades ago. So the overall trend line is hopeful. But there are so many problems that we can't just assume that trend line is going to sustain itself. We need to work actively to reinforce it and build on it. And that's where some of my recent proposals have come in. Looking now in the biggest picture possible, America's role in the world. Um, you and a lot of your colleagues are writing about this. You've written that America's capacity to project military power around the world is its unique strength and underpinning to the global order. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? And why is uh, the concept of global order so essential? Well, first of all, America's chief strength, I don't know that it has one chief strength. Its chief military advantage over other countries, apart from just the resources we pump in to the military and our, and our high technology and our extraordinary men and women in uniform, we are a global power. We can project a lot of force over a lot of distance. And that's unique. The British and the French um, used to be able to do a fair amount. Now they can send a couple, 3,000 forces pretty mm -hmm. quickly. That's about it. We can, we can literally send many dozens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of forces quickly. So we, you know, you would expect we could do more because we're five times bigger than any Western European country. Right. But we can actually do more like 50 times what they can do in terms of military force deployment. And that makes a big difference. The global order for all the challenges is actually remarkably healthy right now because interstate war basically doesn't happen anymore. Now, we shouldn't take that for granted. We have to worry to make sure it doesn't happen between India and Pakistan or North and South Korea or, you know, again, Iran and some of its neighbors. There are places where this could happen. And obviously, a number of countries are involved in the war in Syria, taking different sides, essentially in a proxy fight. Mm -hmm. But there aren't big invasions in the hearts of the industrial world of one country by another. And that's true for a number of reasons, including nuclear deterrence and a few other uh, uh, core underlying structural realities about today's world, but it's a very important uh, development. And we really need to extract out the lessons of why it's so, mm -hmm. and then make sure we reinforce and solidify the foundations of this stable international system. Well, I'm going to zoom back down to the personal level mm -hmm. as we wrap it up here. You're the author or contributor to 10 or more books over the past 10 years. Uh, you, you write scores of op-eds and articles every year. You appear all across the media. You're a teacher and you travel constantly. How do you manage all of that? Well, as you know, we're, we're lucky here at Brookings. We, um, we have a great deal of intellectual freedom and uh, we have a number of people and foundations and entities who believe in our work and, and are supportive of it. And you know, you basically just described my entire set of work responsibilities. Beyond those things, I don't have to do that much. <laughs> and, uh, and so I can really focus in on my research most of the time. Uh, administratively and otherwise, we're blessed by uh, a good environment. We, we do have to, as many know, um, raise a fair amount of our own money, but you often benefit from that process because you learn interesting things from interesting people. So I think on balance, um, you do have to watch your schedule and a think tanker has to be careful not to confuse sort of busyness with productivity. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt that as a scholar, first and foremost, 
I need to protect two, three, four hours of my daily schedule that are mostly for writing and research. And if I get into a book mode, which I'm in at least half the time, I will really try to protect a good chunk of the day. And that becomes, in that part of the day, the writing and research becomes mm -hmm. more important to me than anything except my kid's health and maybe some other kind of emergency. And, uh, and I think that's a key point. I think, you know, in general, in life, a lot of people learn this lesson for whatever field they're in. They've got to remember what got them to be um, established or successful in the first place and work to bolster and reinforce that and not mm -hmm. take it for granted. And it could be, you know, an athlete doing their basic conditioning, or it could be uh, a businessman or businesswoman keeping track of the market instead of just running their own business. You, you, you got to do things that keep strengthening your own foundations. And if you do that, a lot of the rest of the stuff follows. But you also have to be able to say, no, we're in mm -hmm. a busy town that has a lot of meetings, a lot of conferences, a lot of think tanks, a lot of other associations. And of course, we learn a lot by being involved with those others, but we also need to avoid the sense that kinetic motion equals uh, worthy activity. And so I actually try to say no to a lot of the things that are going on in order to stay at my desk and do my research. Well, Mike, I'm very glad that you said yes to this podcast interview, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you for all you do. Pleasure, Fred. Thank you. To learn more about O'Hanlon and his research, visit brookings.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.